Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is the word of God. Before I begin, I wanted to just uh, offer one more announcement. We have uh, September 24th, we're beginning a new series uh, of Sunday school uh, and for adult Sunday school. And so if you're interested, it's on the centrality of the gospel. Uh, leaders in our church are required to take this course. It's uh, five sessions. Uh, and uh, we'll provide a schedule beginning next week. But if you're interested in being a part of uh, just understanding the engine that drives our ministry, uh, this is a, a good way to start because it's a great way to connect with newer people who tend to come into our church and learn, want to learn more about our ministry. But also uh, just to understand what is the gospel. When people talk about being gospel-centered, what does that mean? And uh, we want to at least be able to carefully define that for you and to be able to walk with you in this because really everything that we do here is going to be driven by those five sessions and what we hear and learn in those five sessions. So please, we welcome you. If you're, if you're new or visiting, if you're a college student, want to know and get more plugged into the church. If you're a leader and you haven't taken this course yet, we do require this over the course of a three-year period. So it's a great opportunity again to learn again it's always good to learn more about the gospel, what it is, um, and understand really the heart and soul of our church. Now, we've, for the last uh, summer, for the past summer, we've been uh, uh, walking into a series uh, where we talked about all these passages that we hear in Scripture that we've heard about or read. If you've ever been in the church, uh, you certainly learn from these passages. If you've never been into a church before, um, you've at least heard of certain stories uh, in the Bible, and really what we want to do is unpack again so we can relearn the Bible. Uh, it's a survey. We've talked about the Garden of Eden, the flood, Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets. We've talked about God's covenant with man, God calling his people, bringing together a people to a nation, to a kingdom. We looked at themes of sin and grace and salvation and law and repentance, humility, courage, helplessness, and power. Today we're going to look at suffering. We're going to look at temptation. We have Jesus dialoguing with Satan. And Satan says, you're hungry. Make bread. And Jesus is hungry. He's, a, he's, he's been starving really for 40 days and, and he's suffering. And uh, because he's hungry, he's tempted. 
And he responds, man does not live by bread alone. He doesn't indulge. Now, what does that tell you? Your view of God, your view of Satan, your view of heaven, your view of hell, hell it's going to shape how you live your life. It's going to shape your lifestyle. Being a Christian doesn't make you immune to suffering. It's not going to make you immune to temptation. But being a Christian gives you a greater reality, a deeper reality, a greater power to deal with suffering, to deal with temptation in your life. For instance, if you don't believe in God and you believe then that we're just molecules that billions of years ago collided and came together by random, by chance, uh, there's no need for traditional morality. Now, this is age-old, but you could read this even as late as the 1800s. Frederick Nietzsche, if you read his genealogy of morality, he really takes that concept and brings out the reality that our morals are relative. The concept of good The concept of evil, it's relative. That's what he says. And so your view, if you don't believe in God, that if you believe that we've just come together, we've come to be, to being by chance, randomness, then there's no need for traditional morality. You can live any way you want. There's no real judge because there's no transcendent good, and so you can make up your own laws. Laws are relative. And that's because words like suffering, words like temptation, they're not objective words. They're not empirical words. And so you're going to leave even those things to chance. Those things just happen by chance. Now, of course, when it means that when suffering happens to you, real suffering, and God forbid this happened to anybody, but rape, the murder of a loved one, you have no right then to cry out for injustice. Because if we're really just molecules who've come together by chance, then there's no real judge, then there's no such thing as justice either. You have no right to cry out because it's all random. We all, what what is good? What is evil? Suffering is random. There's no such thing as injustice or oppression. It's really all part of natural selection. Strong over the weak. There are three things we're going to learn today about suffering and temptation. One, the context of suffering and temptation. Two, the great lesson that we can learn from our sufferings and temptation. And lastly, the power to heal, the power to restore, the power to deal with our suffering and our temptation. The context, the great lesson, the power. First, we're going to look into the context of our suffering and temptation. Who suffers and when do they suffer? Who suffers and is tempted? When do they suffer and are tempted? Verse 1, Jesus He was full of the Spirit, it says. And what happens? What happens after that? Mark chapter 1 says Jesus Christ was baptized. Jesus Christ was baptized. And the heavens opened up, and the Spirit of God came down on Jesus. And God there doted on Jesus. God honored Jesus. God is affirming Jesus. That's really how he began his ministry, after he was baptized. And immediately after, what happens? He's assaulted by Satan. He's tempted by Satan. This part's not printed in your bulletins, but the verse right after this passage that we're looking at, verses 14 and 15, it says, then in the power of the Spirit, still full of the Spirit, he began his ministry. He began to teach. In other words, verse 1, he's full of the Spirit. Verse 14, he's full of the Spirit. 
Jesus is filled with the presence of God. And throughout the Bible, that, that notion of being filled with the presence of God, having the power of the Spirit, it's synonymous with power. It's synonymous with courage. Why? Because all of life is filled with suffering. All of life is filled with temptation. If verse 1 and verse 14 are the bookends and you see Jesus Christ filled with the Spirit, whenever you see that in the Bible, what's in between shows you, in other words, how that plays out. How was he filled with the Spirit? How did he apply that? How did he, how did he play that out? Whenever you see that, it shows us how or where God's presence is revealed. And where, how is it revealed? Where is it revealed? In this passage? In the bookends? In between? In suffering. In temptation. When, was Je- when Jesus was filled with the Spirit, what happened? Suffering. Temptation. Attacked by spiritual forces. In other words, you can't just run from it. You can't just try to build your life to avoid suffering. You can't just run from temptation. Prevent that from happening. Build a wall around it. Jesus Christ was in the wilderness for 40 days. It's 40, that number, is synonymous with God uh, and his people. Life in God as God's people. God's people, Israel... After they were saved, not before they were saved, after they were redeemed, after they were rescued from slavery, they were in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, that, that means that everyone suffers. All of God's people suffer. All of God's people are tempted. Life is a wilderness filled with suffering and temptation. Now, that's going to be mind-blowing. If you actually sit and just hear what I'm saying to you, that should be mind-blowing because it's contrary to two prevailing worldviews about suffering. The first, you see this all over the Bible, in the prophet Job, very poignant in the prophet Job. Job is a good man. Job is a God-fearing man. Job is a wise man. And all of a sudden, his life, from his perspective, all of a sudden just blows up. And he cries out, why? Why is this happening to me? What do his friends say? This is the first worldview. The friends say, very simply, very pedantically, if you suffer, I'm really paraphrasing what they're saying to him, if you're suffering, if you feel cursed, you must have done something wrong. You must have lived a bad life. Now, the second view is a corollary to that. The corollary is what? If you're blessed, if good things are going on in your life, you must have done something good. Now, every religion teaches some form of those two worldviews. Every religion teaches that. That if you live a good life, you're going to be blessed. Buddhism has the eightfold path. Live a good life, you will be blessed. Islam has the five pillars. The five pillars. If you live a good life, you will be blessed. Judaism has a Torah. If you live a good life, then blessing will be upon you. Then you will receive God's presence, but not Christianity. The gospel is actually counter to that. Christianity says what? If you look at this passage, if you really look at it, Jesus Christ is honored by God. The most perfect and obedient person to ever walk the earth. And yet, in the midst of blessing and honor, he's afflicted. He suffers. He's tempted. He dies. Christianity says, Everyone suffers. Anytime. Anyone can suffer. 
anytime, it doesn't matter how you lived. So the answer to the question, who suffers? Anyone. Anyone can suffer. If Jesus Christ, perfect, loved by God, honored by God, suffers, if Jesus Christ, perfect, honored by God, loved by God, is tempted, then anyone can suffer, anyone can be tempted. When does it happen? Anytime. Anytime. If Jesus Christ, when he's full of the Spirit, in that context, if he's suffering and is tempted, that means that temptation and suffering can happen anytime. Suffering happens to anyone, anytime. It doesn't matter how you've lived. If you lived a good life, if you lived a bad life. If you remember the movie No Country for Old Men? It's actually a book, No Country for Old Men, Oscar winner. Cormac McCarthy, most of his books, just about all of his books, what's his point? His point is this, suffering and evil will always find you. Will always find you. Doesn't matter how you lived. And if you don't believe this, your life will become a mess. You can beat other people up. You can beat yourself up for your suffering. You can hate the world for your suffering. You can hate God for your suffering. And if you do that, it will be a mess. If you hate all these people for a mess, it will be a mess. It will embitter you. It will corrode your soul because life is a wilderness. That's the first point, the context for our suffering, anyone, anytime. Kind of a long-winded way of saying that, right? We're going to go into the second point, great lessons that we can learn or the great lesson that we can learn no matter how we're suffering, no matter how we're being tempted. If you believe that good, that God is good and God is not your enemy, and if you believe that suffering and temptation are not random, then who's the real enemy? Where's the real enemy? Now, the Puritans spent a lot of time answering this question. But I'm going to tell it to you like this. Years ago, there was a miniseries. It's now been decades. There's a miniseries that psychologized Hitler. And the critics of this miniseries, because it was playing out over days, these critics were saying that, oh my goodness, we're going we're gonna to see for days the world trying to show sympathy and compassion towards the most evil person that has lived in our time. And they were fearing that this series would garner sympathy from the public. Why did they fear that? Why were they afraid of that? It's because the world wants us to believe that we're all products of our environment, that we're all products of our circumstances. But if you really believe that, you really can't blame the environment for Hitler. Why? Because the most educated, most sophisticated, most culturally uh, profound, the most uh, beautiful people at that time were who? It was the Germans. It was the Nazis. You have to go deeper than that. You have to go deeper. Let's look at this text. There were three temptations. Verses 2 to 13. Three temptations. What do you see? Throughout this text, Jesus Christ. Look at his self-control. Look at his words. Look at his actions. Look at his integrity. That's what was revealed through the suffering, through the temptation. The sufferings and temptations didn't make him. It didn't break him. They were revealed. His integrity, his actions, his words. Self-control is what? The ability to identify. The ability to choose the ability to desire and choose what is, uh, what is 
uh, important over what is urgent. To be able to see through and choose that which is important over that which is immediate or urgent in your life. Notice, Satan doesn't tempt Jesus by taking him to the red light district. That's not what he does. He doesn't tempt him with prostitutes. He doesn't tempt him with drugs. What does he do? He uses bread. He uses bread. He doesn't use bad things. He uses good things. Bread, power, security. What's wrong with any of those things? They're good things. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But the problem is Satan is offering these things apart from God without the cross. Trying to take Jesus away from his mission of the cross. Making those immediate things more urgent. Trying to make them more important than Jesus' relationship with God. He's making good things. In fact, John Calvin, one of his famous phrases is what? I, it's, it's the concept of taking a good thing. Idolatry is taking a good thing and making them ultimate things. Look at the three temptations. Verses, verses 3 to 4. Turn these stones to bread. Bread throughout the Old Testament represents satisfaction, deep cosmic satisfaction. If Jesus actually obeyed, if he complied and did that, it would have been the only time in the entire Gospels, the only time in the entire Bible, where he would have used his own power to indulge himself, his own power to satisfy himself. The temptation is to use your abilities, your talents, your gifts to indulge yourself. Friends, this is our world. We are living in a time where all we do is work so that we can play and indulge. We are living right in that time. We are in the wilderness. That's our lives. And if Jesus Christ did that, it would have been the only time in his life that he would have indulged himself using his abilities and his talents and his gifts without God, without suffering, without going to the cross. This type of temptation, as one commentator puts it, it's very direct It's like taking an exit ramp right off the highway to indulge like that. You're on this highway. You're on a mission. You're you're towards a destination. You're just taking an exit ramp. You're just going right off. Self-control is to stay on the road. Staying on the road. Because if you take take the road, the exit ramp right off the highway, if you indulge, it's going to lead you to, to corrosion of the soul whether you're taking the exit ramp into bitterness and anger, whether you're taking off into uh, sex, illicit sex, if you're taking it into drugs, whatever it is, it could be just living in anger, living in resentment, living in pride, living in jealousy. It could be any of these things. You're going to get off the exit, you're going to get derailed. Self-control is staying on the road, never getting off the road. Look at Jesus, so consistent all the way through. Even there's a cadence in this dialogue. So self-controlled, so steady, you can trust him. You can trust in the character of Jesus. Sometimes we stop trying because we've given up on people. I tried. I'm not going to try anymore. I've given up on people. I'm going to stop trying because there's so many injustices and offenses in my life. There's so much oppression in my life. Uh, we get bitter towards the church. I'm going to stop in the church. I've given up on these people. I'm going to give up. I'm giving up on my life. And now I'm just, I'm just going to go with the flow. I'm a pastor. I've seen a lot of new people come in and out of the church. I bump into them. 
actually quite often, people who've cycled in through our church and now, you know, you always wonder, I wonder where they are today. And every once in a while, I'm in a restaurant or at the supermarket, and I bump into them. And, I, and they share with me, you know, they feel maybe obligated or compelled to share with me their lives. But a lot of them, they say, you know, my life is kind of derailed. And I'm just kind of going with the flow. I'm just going with it. You know why that happens? It's because you've been off the road. And you're just going. You're just continually. It's a downward spiral. That ramp is a downward spiral. That's what it is. Jesus Christ, verse 1, full of the Spirit. You see the theme of this passage. He stays on that road. And it leads you right into verse 14. In the power of the Spirit, he's continuing on and teaching, begins his ministry. It's not apart from suffering. It's not apart from temptations. The Bible actually says Jesus Christ was tempted in all things. Stays on the road. Verses 5 to 8, what's the temptation? I will give you kingdoms. I will give you authority. In other words, you can have glory without God. You can have glory without suffering. You can have glory without the cross. Verses 9 to 12, the temptation is what? Rescue. You, <coughs> you can have security without God. You can have security without suffering. You can have security without the cross. Satisfaction, glory, security. What's the presence of Satan? It's like a voice. It's like a voice that battles you every moment like this. You can have satisfaction. You can have glory. You can have security for yourself. You don't even need God in your life for that. You can have it at other people's costs. Do you want it? Yeah, you want it. Take it. It's there for you. Take it. I will give it to you. Because if Jesus obeys his calling, Satan's calling, God's people are lost. But if you look through the gospel, what was Jesus' ministry? The healings and the miracles. Is it just healings? Is it just miracles? What Jesus is actually doing through his healings and his miracles, he's ushering in a new kingdom, a new presence, a new voice. That's what he's doing. A new voice. The kingdom of Satan always says what? You can have uh, satisfaction and glory and security apart from God at other people's cause. Jesus Christ's kingdom says this. You can help other people to receive satisfaction, real satisfaction, true glory, true security at my cost. That's the mission of the church, to spend so that other people receive the heart of real satisfaction, real glory, real security. There's this place, uh, you know, if you think about all the miracles, the miracles were a mere example. They were mere examples of Jesus Christ reversing the curse through his work. He's restoring and healing. That's what he's doing. He's bringing together, binding together that which is broken using his hands, using his work at his cost. There's this place in John chapter 6, right before the miracle of feeding the 5,000. Jesus Christ has been teaching, and the people are hungry. And it says that he's teaching by the mountainside. It's really God bringing us back to the Mount Sinai experience where the people of God have been brought across and rescued, and now the teaching has come down. The law is coming down. You see kind of a reenactment of that, except this time instead of a wilderness, just kind of a non sequitur in that passage, right? Very in the beginning parts of John chapter 6, it says, all of a sudden the author writes, there's just plenty of grass there. Why is he saying that? 
Jesus Christ is reversing the curse. Where there's wilderness, now there's grass. That's what he's saying. All of his ministry, he's going to help people to receive true bread. That's the feeding of the 5,000. True bread, true satisfaction, real glory, real security, ultimate security at his cost. What about you? Where are you spending? What work are your hands doing? Whose satisfaction and glory and security are you pursuing? For whom are you pursuing these things? Every step you take, this is what the meaning, when we say that Jesus Christ is ushering in a new kingdom, every step you take, here's the meaning, every step you take is a step closer to one kingdom or the other, towards God and his kingdom, towards Satan and his domain. Which means that this is the great lesson. Suffering, anxiety, bitterness, your great nightmares in life, the great temptations in your life, it reveals your heart's desire for satisfaction and glory and security, the deep idols of our hearts. The great lesson is this. Who's the real enemy? Where can the real enemy be found? If I build a wall to secure myself away from the great temptations of my life, am I redeemable? Can I save myself? And the answer is absolutely, resoundingly no. Why? Because the real enemy is within. The real enemy is inside. Your desires and the way they play with you, the distortions of your heart, the machinations of your heart, that these things that you're pursuing are more real than the presence of God in your life. That's the great distortion. That's the great lie. Satan is the deceiver. That's the great lie. Friends, I'm going to speak to you as a brother, okay? Not just a pastor, but as a brother. We live in a world where we have the opportunity at this stage probably in your life to accumulate wealth in an, at an unprecedented level. You have that opportunity today. Why are you pursuing it? Why are you pursuing it? My old seminary professor once asked me, he said, you have, Donnie, you have a great opportunity in your world, in your field of work. You know, at the time, I wasn't really going into ministry. I had no thoughts to go into ministry. And he said, in your workplace, you have a tremendous opportunity to be able to bring people together and say, what can we do together that we cannot do alone? He says, that, and then sit there and pray through that. And there you will find calling. There you will find purpose. Why God has placed you here. What an amazing lesson. The distortions of the heart are to convince you that these things are more real than the presence of God. So how do you resist? Where is the power to resist? That's our final point. How does Jesus respond? What does he do? Each time you see the cadence, he relies on Scripture, instinctively relies on Scripture. In the beginning, the first temptation, Jesus responds in verse 4, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. Verses 5 to 7, Satan tempts him. Glory, kingdoms, authority. Verse 8, Jesus responds, it is written, 
Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Verse 9, Satan begins, he uses the Bible to convince and deceive Jesus. You can have security. You can have security without God, apart from God. Verse 12, Jesus says, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Look at that beautiful cadence, each time responding with Scripture, each time responding. Instinctively, he resists temptation to indulge himself for glory, for security. You know what Jesus' glory was? You see this throughout the, the Gospel according to John. Before Jesus is arrested, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You know what he was talking about? The glory that he was pursuing, his mission, he's talking about being lifted up on the cross. His glory was the cross. He's talking about his death. Job cries out, why me? Why me? In fact, the Old Testament prophets, they often cried out, why? Why is this happening to me? But you never see New Testament apostles, ever. You go through the Old New Testament. You will never see a New Testament apostle asking and crying out to God, why? Only one. During his greatest hour of suffering, Jesus Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, do you know, even there, he was quoting Scripture. Beautiful cadence all through his life. He was quoting Scripture. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In fact, in Psalm 22, you see, I am thirsty. And in Psalm 22, you see the phrase, it is finished. He was literally reciting Scripture, meditating on Scripture on the cross. What was Jesus doing in his greatest hour of suffering? His greatest moment of glory when he would be lifted up for all to see in shame, in misery, in ridicule, in mockery, as he's being tortured and punished? And the real punishment was what? God himself pouring out his wrath, forsaking his son. And Jesus Christ was worshiping and praying, still trusting that God and his promises is faithful meditating, fulfilling, obeying up until he ends his life, up until he dies. That means, you know what, you know what was going on when he was on the cross? Being separated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was being separated from God. That's hell. Hell is total separation from God. You know what that means? That even while he was separated from God, Jesus Christ processed hell processed hell through scripture that's what he was doing knowing that jesus processed these things through scripture you can have the strength to process your temptations and your suffering through scripture you got to look to the cross look to christ how as an example you'll fail Jesus did it so I can do it, you will fail utterly. By just reading and studying and praying, that's how you're going to resist temptation, you will fail. Jesus Christ, as an example, will discourage you and you will fail every time. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to resent the Bible and God and you're going to resent the church for that. Jesus, as an example, will never help you through suffering and temptation. Jesus did not come to be a moral example in your life. 
He came to be your substitute. He came to take your place. You will never truly know Jesus until you first see that. What's really going on here in this text, Satan it takes Jesus to a mountaintop. And it's not to get Jesus to stop being an example for us, but it's to keep him, to entice him from going to the cross. He's trying to prevent Jesus from being our substitute. So at the top, as he looks out in full view of everything that he can, he can receive, if he would just obey Satan's words, at the top, he's tempting him. He's trying to heighten his desire, heighten his view, heighten his senses. Isn't that what we do when we dream big dreams for ourselves to indulge? Isn't that what we're doing? What he's saying to Jesus is, reject the cross. Serve this and reject the cross. Instead, what does Jesus do? He's processing that through Scripture. He's applying Scripture. God's words, God's promises, they're shaping his life. He's taking, he's not just reading it, he's not just meditating, he's letting it shape his life. It takes Jesus, God's words and his promises are taking Jesus to a higher place than any mountaintop in the world, any kingdom that the world can offer. In other words, our desires are way too strong for our willpower to endure them. Don't you get it? Our dreams are way greater than our present realities, and it's intoxicating. It's intoxicating to our souls, too powerful to resist. In fact, many of us, we haven't been able to pass those tests. We are where we are today in this room because we haven't been able to pass those tests. Jesus Christ knew you cannot pass those tests on your own, and so he had to come and be perfect for our sakes. He had to live a righteous life. Jesus lived the life that we should live, and then he died and paid the penalty. for the, he, we, he died the death that we should die, and he lived perfectly. He lived that perfect life, and he died that perfect death. He knew that we couldn't pass those tests on our own, so he knew he had to be perfect, and he was. He was perfect. Look at the beauty of Christ. Look at the amazing resilience and love and compassion of Christ. He took our place. That's what saves us. And he helps us to see our suffering and our temptation and our test then differently. He helps us to see it differently. On the cross, what happens? Righteousness received wrath. Holiness received hell. Perfection received our penalty in our place. Jesus passed every test he deserved satisfaction. He deserved glory. He deserved ultimate security. But when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, you, my Father, are the true satisfaction. In you is glory. In you is security. And I've lost you. I've lost you. That was the real suffering on the cross. The hour of his glory was when he would lose ultimate glory. The ultimate glory of being known and loved God's presence in us. And so, Jesus is saying, this on the cross is the ultimate wilderness, the ultimate lostness, the ultimate hell, the ultimate separation. It's the only wilderness where we could be truly lost in our lives. It's the only separation that would truly, where we would truly be lost. Why did he do that? He took our place. We deserve the wrath. We deserve the hell. We deserve the penalty. But he came as our substitute, and in union with him, we receive the satisfaction 
of being known by God, loved by God, the glory presence of God in our lives, the security of being held by God in his embrace. That's the security of salvation, friends. Change is hard. Change is hard. Even with the glory presence of God in our lives, change is hard, but it is impossible on our own. But in Jesus, we receive the presence of God. We receive the presence of God. That means we are full of the Spirit. And that gives us the power to resist. That gives us the courage to resist temptation. That gives us the power to endure suffering. No matter what the suffering, friends, my father was murdered when I was five years old. Friends, I understand. Some of us have endured unimaginable things in our lives. It gives us the power to endure suffering. That power of the Holy Spirit, that's the same power that raised Jesus back from the dead. And it resides in every believer, everyone who places their faith and trust in the cross of Christ, in his perfect righteousness, his character, what he's done. He lived that perfect life, who he is. So gaze on his beauty when you look at the cross. Gaze on the majesty and the kingliness of Christ when you look at the cross but also gaze on his work. His work, does that not satisfy you? I mean, if you've been looking for approval all your life, that's why, if you're looking for satisfaction, deep satisfaction and meaning and purpose all your life, if you've been looking for glory all your life, is that not true glory, true security, to know that your lives are in God's hands, secure, and that nothing can ever snatch you from his hand? That's, that's Jesus' words. Do you know that? Look to the cross. Look to the mountain of Calvary. Go up that mountain. Ascend that mountain and you will see a greater satisfaction, a greater glory, a greater security, a greater power. It's more than anything that the world can offer. Charlotte Bronte wrote Jane Eyre one of the greatest pieces of literature, probably in, in Western history. And the main character, Jane Eyre, falls in love with a man, Rochester. Now, Jane Eyre is a very plain woman, a plain girl, and she is serving a decent, wonderful man. But there's one problem. Rochester is already married to a woman who is sick and has gone mad. One of the greatest pieces of literature because there you get to see the thoughts of each person. It's one of the first times that you see. It's groundbreaking because you get to peer into the heart of the person, of the characters, the motives that are driving each character, the heart of each character. The struggle is she wants to be loved. She wants love, she, but she's in love with a married man. You know what she concludes? She must renounce love and idol. I will not be yours. At one point, Rochester approaches her and says, it would not be wicked to love me. And you know how she responds? It would be wicked to obey you. She rationalizes. Heart, conscience resisted. Comply, rationalize it, love him. She resolves, the law was made for such moments as this. Wow. What's Bronte saying? All of our temptations have a voice. They all have a voice. The voice says comply. Obey your anger. 
Obey your desire to feel sexy. Obey your jealousy. That's the voice. You have to say, I will be strong. Jesus Christ has given me his power. I've placed, my life is no longer my own. I've placed my life in his and he in mine. The spirit of God resides in me. There is power in my life. Union. There is power. His life is my life. His success is my success. And he never failed. And so that means I don't have to fail. I can't fail. There is courage. There is power. It resides in me. You know, the boldness comes in knowing. There's a humility in knowing that my sin brought me here. My sin brought me here. That's what makes us humble. The boldness is Jesus Christ will never let me go. That gives you courage to try. But what if I fail? There's courage. You can attempt. There's power residing in that courage. It's not an empty courage. There's power residing in that courage. Jane Eyre is being told to appease society, to do what it says. In those days, women had very little value, so you were just taught to give in to the passions of other men. Be loved at the cost of other women. Get off that exit ramp. But in the book, she's a Christian. She's a Christian in a society before feminism. And in a sense, Jane Eyre becomes a proto-feminist because she plants her foot down and she says, no, I will not give in. Now, if you do this just because Jesus did it, you're going to fail. Jane Eyre didn't do it because it felt good. In fact, she felt horrible because of it. Why do you do it? You do it because the Spirit of God is alive in you. God is real. You do it because Jesus and what he did and who he is is real. Jesus also resisted. But he knew that if he obeyed, he would be abandoned. He's the only person in the entire Bible who ever knew God and obeyed God perfectly and lost God as a result. And you know he gladly did it for us. He gladly did it for you. He gladly did it for us. That was God's design. It wasn't some random act. It was an injustice, the ultimate injustice. Perfection was penalized, and yet he gladly did it as a part of his design. God's people were so treasured by God that he would rather be lost himself than lose his people. Do you see that? That's the love of God. That's the compassion of God. That's the mercy of God. Will that move you and empower you if that becomes real to the degree that it shapes you, so real that it shapes you, then you will treasure him. He will be the greater tip of that mountaintop. You will ascend that mountain and see a greater satisfaction and a greater glory and a greater security than you could ever afford, that you could ever earn here on your own. Why would you resist Jesus Christ resisted because that vision was greater than all the kingdoms of the world. Why would you resist? Jesus' opinion of you is not going to be enough. Another woman's opinion of you is not going to be enough. Another man's opinion of you is not going to be enough. Another boss's opinion of you is not going to be enough. Another leader's opinion of you is not going to be enough. Your hurts and how they tempt you to define you are not going to be enough. They often become urgent. They often become, those immediate things become urgent. It's why we fall. Because those things are so much more urgent and they become more important. Satan's greatest temptation, 
Look what he says to Jesus. He uses the Bible. We're able to rationalize these things sometimes. If you're a child of God, do this. That's what, basically what he's telling Jesus. Makes us, tempts us to rationalize our sinfulness. But let the cross be your assurance. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. You want satisfaction? There's your eternal peace. There's your eternal joy. There is your eternal bliss. You want glory? You are known by the one, the only one who will last. God's presence, the true king forever. You want security? Revelation. At the end of Revelation, the author John writes, there is no night in heaven for the glory of the Lord. His presence is its lamp. Only if you see Jesus going through the wall, bloodied, going through the wall first and bloodied for you, will you have the power and the courage to follow right behind. That's the power to kill temptation. Look to the cross. Look to the cross of Christ. Meditate on the cross of Christ as our substitute. Trust in his promise Look to his faithfulness. Depend on his forgiveness and obey. Let's do that. Let's pray.